Good morning. Ah, oh, so good to see all of you and have all of you here this morning at the nine o'clock service and glad to have those of you who are joining us from your homes this morning for this service as well. A couple of reminders before the message. Next Sunday, uh, I would like to meet with all of the parents of our youth. Uh, those who are presently in our youth ministry, those who are going to be parents of our youth that are coming in in a couple of weeks uh, when they come in at the end of May, and then anyone who would like to work with our youth here at the Oasis. Say about 10.30, between the 9 o'clock service and the 11 o'clock. So those of you that come to 9, you're going to have to stay just a little bit longer. Those of you that come to the 11, maybe have to come a little bit earlier, but about 10.30, uh, between two services, we'll be right here in the auditorium uh, for that very important meeting about our youth ministry. Then don't forget again, the month of April is chocked full. The first Sunday of April, April the 2nd, is our 13th anniversary as a church. Then the next Sunday, April 9th, of course, is Easter Sunday. The following weekend, on Saturday the 15th, we're having baptism. And if any of you have never been baptized or you would like to be baptized or even rebaptized, uh, we can do that for you as well. Please go out to the information table and ask them to give you the uh, baptismal uh, sign-up sheet and put your name and information down there so that you can be contacted. And then the weekend after that, our men are on their retreat out at top of the world. So a lot of stuff coming up. After spring break is over into the month of April, we hope that you'll be able to join us for any and all of it uh, as your schedule allows. Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke chapter 15. We are in the Gospel of Luke. Again, looking at the story of Jesus. What can the story of Jesus uh, tell us, teach us about our God and about ourselves? And today, uh, I've entitled the message, Found Alive, Found Alive. All of us, if we've been around for uh, any length of time, are familiar with stories of great rescues, uh, whether someone was rescued after many days uh, in an earthquake, uh, found in the rubble, uh, people who are found in avalanches after maybe several hours or even days. Uh, we know of the story of the uh, soccer team in Thailand that was found in the cave, and of course, miners that are, you know, found uh, after the mine collapsed. We all are familiar with those very dramatic stories of people found alive that maybe no one thought would be, right? I want you to keep that in mind, and even that feeling that maybe you and I get when we're watching those dramatic rescues on television. But I also want us to be reminded that the greatest rescue you and I will ever be a part of is the day that God rescued us through Jesus Christ. That is the most dramatic and greatest rescue any human being can ever experience. And we're going to talk about that today. In fact, the context of why Jesus shares these three very 
familiar stories or parables with us in Luke chapter 15 is all born out of just a few verses at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. So look at those with me, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. It tells us that the context is that all these tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners. They were the ostracized and outcasts of society. And yet they were the ones that were coming to hear, to listen to Jesus. It's always good to listen to Jesus. In fact, we are blessed when we listen to Jesus. But as the tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to him, the religious leaders of Israel weren't happy. It tells us that the Pharisees and all the experts in the law were complaining that Jesus was welcoming these sinners and even eating with them. Now, this tells us several things. One, we can be doing what God wants us to do, because certainly that's the case with Jesus. We can be doing something good and still get complaints about it. That's why you and I must get to a place in our life as followers of Jesus Christ where we don't primarily seek to please people because you're never going to please people. You seek to live for the audience of one, and you seek to please the Lord. Even Jesus always had his critics, and we know Jesus did everything perfect. But the second thing is that this tells us something about the heart of God that the religious leaders of Israel missed. They didn't know the heart of God. Because the heart of God is to warmly welcome sinners, to make himself accessible to sinners, and even be interested in them. He welcomed them and even ate with them. Aren't you glad that God welcomes sinners? Aren't you glad that God makes himself accessible and is interested in sinners? Otherwise, you and I have no hope because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all in the same boat. We are all in need of grace. And, and one of the things that we're going to see woven throughout this passage of Scripture this morning is the power and potential of God's grace. When we truly realize, even in a small way, what we have through Christ that we don't deserve. So notice that the story then that Jesus is about to tell, in fact, these three stories back to back to back are all in response to the criticism that Jesus is getting from the religious leaders. So he says, okay, let me tell you a story. He said, which one of you, if you have 100 sheep, and you lose one, would not leave the 99 in the pasture and go and search for that one sheep until you have found it. One of the things that we learn 
from this statement is that God loves every last person. One. Whether you realize it or not, or have ever come to realize it, God loves you. Not just everybody else, he loves you. And, and, and if you would have been the only one on planet Earth, Jesus would have left heaven and come to die on the cross just for you. One, it, it is a reminder to us that every human being from God's perspective perspective is of greatest worth and value everyone everyone the, the second in fact in this first 10 verses the word one is used five times I'll, I'll say that here so one is really important to god everyone this also reminds us that God, because God is represented in these stories by the shepherd in the first story, the woman in the second story, and the father in the third story. And in this story, it is a reminder that God takes the initiative in seeking the one who's lost. God doesn't wait for the sheep to try to find its own way back. If you know anything about sheep, sheep are prone to wander. And it's not good for a sheep to get lost. They can actually get to a place where they're called utterly cast down and can't even get back up on their feet by themselves, and they can die. It's very risky to be a lost sheep. And that's why Jesus is saying here, I'm going after even one because I care about everyone, and I'm going to take the initiative to go out and seek the lost sheep. That's my response to you criticizing and complaining, me, uh, complaining about me, welcoming sinners and eating with them. In fact, in Luke 19.10, a verse we'll look at in a couple weeks in the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus even says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And you see that illustrated here in this first story as the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes out for the one who's lost. If you're lost here today, God is seeking you. He's looking for you. He wants you to come to him. And let's talk about the word lost for a minute. You ever been lost? You ever been the parent of a child that you thought was lost? You know that feeling you get? I can remember even as, you know, an adult, I was driving somewhere and I took a wrong turn and I went and went and I was lost. And, and there's nothing like the feeling of, of hopelessness, fear, and anxiety when you think or you know you're lost. And that's the way many human beings are today. That's why they're filled with hopelessness and fear and anxiety, because they're lost because they've never really connected with the God who created them and who came to save them. And they're just wandering. And they're trying to figure things out on their own. 
and, and they have no real stability and security in their life because, again, they're not connected to their creator and the one who came to save them, their, their shepherd, if you will. But I also want us to apply these principles to even us as Christians. Because though in the context, it can certainly be talking about someone that doesn't yet have a relationship with God through Christ. But let's face it, even we as Christians, even we can get lost throughout our life. Even we can, like sheep, wander off and sort of go our own way and, and start having those feelings of hopelessness and fear and anxiety and not really knowing where we are going in life. And, and we have no direction because we're not following the shepherd. So take that into account, too, as you apply this to your own heart and to your own life this morning. Even if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but you find yourself sort of lost in your life right now, know this, Jesus is coming after you. Jesus is seeking you. Jesus is looking for you because he knows that you need to come back and start following him again. And then notice what Jesus says, this beautiful picture. Once the shepherd finds the sheep, and notice he's going to look for that sheep until he finds it, then Jesus says the shepherd took the sheep. He didn't scold the sheep. He didn't rail on the sheep for wandering off. He didn't say anything negative about to the sheep. He took the sheep, and the shepherd places it on his shoulders and carries the sheep home. And when he gets home, notice what the shepherd does. He calls to his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, because the sheep that I had lost is now found. Rejoice with me. See, Jesus is sharing these stories because it's sort of like a, a rebuke to the religious leaders who are griping and complaining and murmuring that Jesus hangs around and eats with sinners. And Jesus says, you should, instead of be complaining about it, you should be rejoicing with me. By the way, the re word rejoicing is a very important word in the Bible. It is a word that means to experience God's grace, to delight in God's grace, to be conscious of God's grace, to be glad for God's grace. In other words, God is saying that the ground of our rejoicing is when you and I, all of us, are conscious of God's grace in our lives and that we realize that all that we are and all that we have and all that we will ever be is not because we deserved any of it or were worthy of it. It's simply because God gave it to us as a gracious gift. And when the realization of God's grace begins to flow in our life, then the praise and the worship and the honor and the exaltation of our God will start to flow because we realize that everything we have is not because we deserved it. It's God's grace that has operated in our life. And then we can start finding people that's like, shouldn't we be rejoicing over this? The grace that we have and the grace that we all have been given in God. That's what God's looking for. Those who will rejoice over God's grace. Amen. 
And then Jesus says this. Again, sort of as a rebuke to the religious leaders. He says, I tell you, verse 7, there is joy in heaven over even one sinner that repents rather than the 99 who feel they have no need to repent. Jesus saying, you might not be throwing a party down here, but there's a party going on up there over one that turns back to God. Whether it's someone who's never come to Christ and now comes to Christ for the very first time, or maybe it's a Christian who sort of lost their way in life and they're turning back to God in their life. Jesus says, party's going on in heaven, guys. Why isn't it going on down here on earth? Well, let's talk about the word repent because it's something that plays a key role not only in the first and second story that Jesus has here for us today, but especially in the third story of the prodigal. To repent simply means to change course or to reverse course. It is the idea that there's an acknowledgement that I'm going the wrong way and I need to make a turn in my life. That's what repentance is. So for the person here today who may go, man, I, I've been trying to do life by myself and I'm starting to realize how much God loves me and how much he has for me and how much he wants to lead my life and bless my life and all this, and I want to make that turn to God today, that's repentance. And for the Christian who, again, may have lost your way in some respect, it's just simply going, you know what? I'm going this way. I need to reverse course and turn and start going God's way. That's repentance. And Jesus is saying, party in heaven when people repent. And I think Jesus is also saying, if there's a party going on in heaven, then there should be one going on on earth too. Amongst those who, again, know of God's grace, appreciate it, conscious of it, delight in it, glad for it. Then the second story is a parallel to the first. He says, and what woman who has 10 silver coins, by the way, a silver coin would have been a week's worth of wages in those days. That's pretty significant. I wouldn't want to lose a week's wages, <laughs> would you? So he says, this woman loses one silver coin out of ten, and so she lights the lamp, sweeps her house, searches thoroughly for it, meaning diligently. And why is Jesus using that language? Because Jesus wants everyone within earshot of him that day to know God is diligently looking for you too. God is seeking you. He's pursuing you. He wants you to come and turn to him because he knows that the best life we could ever have and the eternal life that we can enjoy is only going to come through him. So he's seeking, he's searching, he's going after you and me. And then Jesus says, she searches until she finds it. And when she finds it, her reaction is the same as the shepherd. 
She calls for her friends and neighbors to rejoice with her because she's found the coin that was lost. And then Jesus says this, verse 10. Again, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. Notice he doesn't say the angels are rejoicing because angels have no concept of grace. They have no concept of salvation by grace. They can't appreciate it. So when Jesus says in verse 10, very specifically, there's joy in the presence of the angels, he's talking about the saints of God. He's talking about your friends and family and my friends and family that's already in heaven. He says they're throwing a party when people repent because they understand grace. They understand the reason that they're in heaven right now is not because they were worthy of it, because they could earn it, or because it was deserving of, of them. It's because of his gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ. That's why they're in heaven, and they're rejoicing when people down here are found by God's grace and begin to appreciate it. Again, remember, these two stories are all in response to the complaining and the griping and the murmuring of the religious leaders who are like, why is Jesus making himself accessible and interested in sinners? Because that's why he came. Because he loves every one of us. And he wants every human being to turn to him and to follow him and become a disciple and to experience his love and his grace and not try to live our lives to earn it because we never can. For the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The gift of God. For by grace are we saved through faith. Even that faith is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that none of us can boast. Grace. The power and potential of grace. And, and, and men and women, when you and I begin to live consciously of God's grace, man, there's nothing that'll light a fire inside of your spiritual life like that. There's nothing that will ignite worship and praise like being conscious of the grace of God in your life. Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am nothing, Paul says, without God's grace. But then we come to the third story. Maybe one of the most beloved and familiar stories in the Bible. The story of the prodigal son. But remember, in this story, the father represents God and the older brother that we're going to look at in a little bit that represents the religious leaders of Israel. And the prodigal sort of represents all of us who are lost and who've gotten off track. So let's look at this story for just a few moments this morning. Jesus starts out by saying this father had two sons. And the younger son, he wasn't very interested in this relationship that he only had for a few years with his father. And I want you to remember that. You see, at this point in this young man's life, it was more about stuff and things and material things. So that's why he goes to his father 
And instead of cherishing that relationship that he could have for just a few more years before he was maybe going to have to leave the house, he says to his dad, Dad, give me my measure of the inheritance. I want to cut and run. I want to enjoy life. I want to get out there and start living. So his father graciously gives him his part of the inheritance, his part of the estate. And you know the story. You're familiar with it. He goes out and basically he lives it up. But it's not too long before he doesn't have anything. He squandered it all on his lifestyle. And then the Bible says to sort of complicate matters and make it even worse, a famine has hit the land. And pretty soon this young man that had so much when he was with his father now has nothing. And he's scrounging around and he gets this job with this farmer and he's out there feeding pigs. And don't miss the irony of that, a Jewish young man feeding pigs? And he's starving. And notice what Jesus says in verse 17. This is very important. Jesus says he finally, after all of his suffering and pain, he came to his senses. Literally, he came to himself. Can I tell you, that's the first step back to God. That's the first step of repentance is when human beings come to their senses. Like, wait a minute, what am I doing here? What? Why am I, why did I end up this way? It, it, doesn't, it didn't have to be this way. It used to be so much better. And in fact, the phrase he came to his senses also reminds us that this young man was deceived. He was deceived by sin because sin is deceitful. For the Bible tells us that sin is pleasurable for a season, but there's payday. And oh, he's, he's feeling it. Some of you who are maybe watching this morning or here this morning, maybe that's where you need to get to. You've been bumping along and you've been, you've been struggling and hitting walls and hitting dead ends and you're, you're starting to feel it. And maybe it, it takes the, the pain of your circumstances to bring you to your knees to a place where you're willing to sort of humble yourself and go, I don't have to be here. I could turn to God. So the young man says, I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to humble myself and confess to him that I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against my father. I'm not even worthy to be called his son. Just treat me like one of his servants. And notice that phrase, I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. That's true. But that's the whole message of these stories. None of us are worthy. None of us are deserving. That's not the issue. Of course, we're not deserving of all that we have in God and with God. But here's the beauty of it. In verse 20, it says, so he got up and went to his father. 
Now, the reason I want to point that out is that is also very important. The decision to do something is vain unless it leads to action. Let me repeat that. The decision to do anything is vain unless it leads to action. That young man could have sat in that place in his life and just spun going, I need to, I need to do this, I need to do this. But until he was willing to get up and take that step back to his father, nothing was ever going to change. And I'm saying that because some of you may have you may be going through your mind like, I, I, I'm, I'm making a decision. I'm, I'm de we all can get there. Where we're like, we have such good intentions about doing this and doing that. And we, we come up with all these strategies in our head. But until we actually put feet to it, nothing changes. And so God may be saying to some of us today, don't just come to your senses, but just get back up and start back. Because the same feet that got you lost in the first place is the same feet that can take you back to God. Just get up and go. And then I love this vivid picture of the love of the father for his son. Because notice what it says. While the son was still a far way off from home, his father saw him. What's that tell you? Tell you the father was looking for him. The father was looking for him. And by the way, did you notice something very important too? The son doesn't say, I'm going to get up and go home in verse 20. He says, I'm going to get up and go to the, my father. Because he realizes home is only home because of the relationship. And I took for granted the relationship that I had with my father all these years. That's home, you see. He didn't say, I'm going home. He said, I'm going back to my father. Because for God, it's always about a relationship. And it says, when the father saw him, the father's heart was moved and it went out to him. This is incredible. I hope you get this this morning. Do you know that every last one of us can literally move the heart of God? You have even a human being in your life that your heart sort of did flippy floppy things for when you saw him? Mine does. It sort of like moves inside of your chest when certain people come into your view, right? When you see somebody, it's like... That's God with us when he sees us coming back to him. His heart literally moves within him. You don't think you can move the heart of God? Oh, yes, you can. Every last one of us can move the heart of God when he sees us turning back to him. And then it says he ran to his son. That was unheard of. Fathers in that day and age, it was very undignified to run to your children. This father, he ran to his son. He hugged him. He kissed him. 
because Jesus wants us to know that's the love that I, God, have for you. Come back to me and let me love on you. Live in my love every day. And then the son, he says, Dad, I'm so sorry. I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy. And the father stops him there because only full restoration would do for the father. Father's not going to punish the son. Father's just so glad he's back. So the father turns to his servants and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get the best robe. I want you to put a ring on his finger. I want you to put sandals on his feet. I want you to kill the fatted calf because we're going to throw a party. Because by the way, in the Net Bible, you'll see the word celebrate. That's what it means. God wants to throw a party. Just like heaven's throwing a party when someone comes back, Jesus is saying, the father realized it's time to throw a party. Because he said, my son, who was dead, is alive again. My son, who was lost, is now found. And by the way, when Jesus uses the word dead, he is reminding us of the severity of the condition of the son before repentance. He was a dead man walking from God's perspective. He was physically alive on this earth. He was moving around every day, but he was dead from God's perspective because everything that he was involved in, everything that he was living for was nothing eternal, was nothing worthwhile, was nothing that was going to matter a million years from now. From God's perspective, he was dead. He was lifeless. He wasn't really alive because when God comes into our life, he wants us to experience life. And the only real living that we will ever have as human beings is when we know the love that God has for us and we live in that love every day and live out of that love every day. In fact, in verse 32, the father is responding here to the older son. And I'm not going to take the time to do much with the older son, even though it's really important. But bottom line is the older son resented the treatment that the father was giving to the prodigal son, his brother. In fact, he doesn't even call him his brother. In, in that passage, you'll notice he says, your son, father. He didn't even look at him as his brother anymore. He's resentful. He's bitter. You know why? Because one who's not conscious of grace, one who doesn't appreciate all that they have because of grace, resents grace being expressed to others. And that's exactly where the religious leaders of Israel were. They had never accepted God's grace. They thought they deserved everything they got. They thought in their own minds and hearts, the reason we are, you know, going to be in heaven one day and, and the reason we are leaders and all of these things is because we deserve it. Because we're Abraham's children. We're, we are God's children simply through birth. And therefore, everything we get, we deserve. We've earned it. And that's why they lived in a works-based religious system that Jesus was rejecting. And they didn't like it. And that's exactly where the older brother was. 
Anyone who's not conscious of God's grace in their life, doesn't appreciate God's grace, will always be bitter and resentful when they see God's grace being expressed to others. And yet I love the statement of the father in verse 32. He tells even the older son, he said, isn't it appropriate? Isn't it fitting that we celebrate and that we throw a party because your brother who was dead is now alive? And your brother that was lost has been found. Are you lost today? If you are, I want you to know something. God's looking for you. He's searching. He's seeking. He's doing everything that he can short of canceling out your free will to bring you back to him. In fact, I hope that, that these stories will be an encouragement to any of you who have lost family members, lost friends, and you pray for their salvation or their restoration back to God. You know why? Because God loves them even more than you do. And God's seeking them and searching for them and looking for them every single day. No one is more diligently searching for them who are lost than God is. Way more than we could. Trust him. But God also needs all of us to come to that place where we repent. That's our part, where we come to our senses, where we take that step back to God, where we realize what we're missing, and we come back to him. His arms are wide open. He'll welcome us back just like the father did the prodigal son. He's looking for us. His heart will be moved within him when he sees us make that turn. But the choice is up to us. So here's what I'd like to do today. Today, we are observing the Lord's table. And certainly, I want you and the Lord to be doing what God wants you to be focused on in this moment or in these moments we have left today. But also within that time, I'd like you to consider this. That when you and I hold those elements that symbolize the broken body and blood of our Lord in our hands today, may we be conscious, so conscious of God's grace <laughs> that all that we are and all that we have through our relationship with Jesus Christ and what he did for us, none of us deserved it, but God gave it to us. And hopefully our hearts will be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for all that we have in Jesus. But I also want to encourage that any of you who are here today and you're lost, you're wandering, that you would come back to God, that you would take that step, and that as you hold those elements in your hand, you realize that God is looking for you. He's searching. He wants you to come back to him. And that maybe by partaking of these elements today, that will be your step to say, God, I'm coming back. I'm coming to you. I'm going to take that step. Because again, the decision to do something is vain unless 
it leads to action. Don't just think about it. Take that step today back to God. I'm going to ask Nicole and our worship team to come and get settled here on the platform. While they're coming and getting settled, I'm going to ask Teresa and her team to get set in helping us pass out the elements of the bread and the cup. We would just ask that you would allow yourself to be served and just to hold on to these elements until everyone is served, until we've concluded our song. And then I will come back and I will lead us in partaking of these elements together. That was very important to Jesus. When Jesus first instituted this with his followers, he wanted us to do this together as one. And so I would just encourage you to do that today as we hold these elements in our hands. May we never forget the grace that made it all possible.